We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right In my last program, I told you about the restrictions that the Muslim world started to impose to stop Jews who were living in other Muslim countries or in European countries emigrating to the Holy Lands, the land given to them by God. They had been the native inhabitants of those lands since 1406 BC, up until the time that the Arab invasion happened in 635 AD. So, there were no Muslim natives to that land during the 2,000 years that the Jews had lived there before the Arab invasion. But there had always been Jews in the land, as I've discussed in my previous programs, and Jews remained in the Holy Land at all times. After the Arab conquest, the Jewish homeland had been occupied by Muslims, different empires over time. It's not accurate to call those people Arabs, as they have many different ethnicities, most of them are not Arabs. Many Jews had scattered throughout North Africa, the Middle East and Europe before the arrival of the Muslims. They were living in what would later become Muslim countries in North Africa and the Middle East and Spain, which was a Muslim country for many centuries until the Christians finally drove them out in 1492. Many Jews also settled in Europe, but as I said, there had always been Jews in the Holy Land who had not left and over centuries of Muslim rule, they had mostly been reduced to the status of badly treated beggars. But something began to stir at the end of the 1800s. Jewish farming settlements were started before the Zionist movement came into existence. Jews came to the Holy Land before the Zionist immigration began. Around this time, the Muslims, in the form of the Ottoman Empire and mostly absentee Muslim landlords, who owned a lot of the land in the Holy Lands and who partly incited the existing Muslim fellahin, the peasant farmers, to hostility to the Jews, began with some success to block the Jews from returning to their homeland. There were no restrictions on Muslims from other Muslim countries coming to the Holy Land, preventing them settling on those same lands that the Jews wanted to move to. Often the Arabs that were moving to the Holy Lands were attracted there by the success of the Jewish farms that were breathing life back into the wasteland that Palestine had become and remained for centuries under the various rulers, including, lastly, the Ottoman Empire. In this program, I'm going to finish the story of the Jews trying to return to their country up until the end of World War I. Theodor Herzl's book, The Jewish State, De Judenstaat, was published in 1896. The first Zionist Congress was held in Vienna in 1897. The first Jewish settlers going to the Holy Land on the basis of Herzl's writing and the Zionist Conference didn't arrive until 1907. But Jewish settlers, who were starting farming settlements, some 
already lived in the Holy Lands, as well as others who had already been arriving in the Holy Land for a generation by then, formed the first settlers setting up and running farms. But the publicity surrounding the founding of the Zionist movement, which means the Jewish movement to regain a historic Jewish homeland in the Holy Lands, led to actions to stop the Jews returning. Actions by the Ottoman Empire, actions by the Muslims, who owned land in Palestine, including many who did not live there, actions by the Sultan, and other Ottoman officials in Jerusalem on instructions from Constantinople, mostly in response to demands from local effendi, the notables, and mostly in fear of Muslim riots about more Jews arriving. All of these groups were going to try to make sure that there would be no increase in the number of Jews living in Palestine. No such restrictions were imposed on any other races. It seems that the entitlement of the Jews to return to their homeland was, by implication, recognised by the Muslims, even though it was never admitted openly. Well, in fact, that happened too, and I'll talk about that in a little while. When news reached Jerusalem that a new wave of Jewish immigrants was heading there, the leading Muslims in the city, the Effendi, wired His Highness, the Grand Vizier, the head of the Ottoman government, and issued a warning to him not to allow these Jews to enter Palestine. That communique was reported in the British consulate papers sent by John Hickson to Edmund Fane on 16 July 1891. The polite demand of the Effendis was promptly complied with within a week, showing the clout that these men had. And when the Grand Vizier issued a telegraphic order stating that the settlement of the Jews in the Sanjak of Jerusalem being forbidden, they are not to be permitted to remain in the Sanjak after they visit the country. Nor were they allowed to acquire land. The Sanjak of Jerusalem was a government district around Jerusalem. That government directive was communicated by Ibrahim Haki, the governor of Jerusalem, to Mr. Consul Dixon in June 1891. The prohibition on Jews acquiring land was a severe blow to the Jews hoping to return to Palestine and join the Jewish farming communities that were growing in number and size. Most of the land in Palestine was owned by the Ottoman Empire, called Miri lands. That made it all the more difficult for the Jews to acquire the land in Palestine that they needed. This one example shows how severe this restriction was on Jewish immigration. It was reported in the United States Consulate Reports of November 1892. In 1892, the Jewish landowners in Jaffa had established orange plantations. They were notified by Constantinople that they would have to surrender all their freehold deeds. In their place, they would receive documents showing that they were now tenants of crown lands instead of the owners of the land. This development came about because someone had discovered that this area had been made part of the imperial domain in 1517. The Jews are intelligent and practical people, so this injustice was not fought in the courts. The more practical solution was adopted of wholesale bribery, so that the imperial order was never carried into effect. The strictness with which the laws blocking Jews from buying land in Palestine were enforced varied. It depended on the extent of local corruption, susceptibility to traditional bakshish, bribery, 
and the amount of influence the Arab notables, the Effendi, could exercise over particular Turkish officials to either let the sale go ahead if they were selling some of their own land to Jews for the usual extortionate prices they charged, or blocking the sale by someone else that they didn't want to go ahead. Both happened. The observance of official restrictions was often honoured in the bridge, since by unofficially relaxing the existing restrictions, an official might gain personal advantage. Despite the generally miserable condition of the Jews living in Palestine, the call of their homeland was so strong that Jews from Yemen, Aden and Persia in 1892 still determined to try and make the trip. Their attempted emigration to Palestine was blocked this time. The Reverend A. Ben Olil of the Presbyterian Alliance wrote on 11 February 1892, Last Tuesday at 3pm there was a large crowd of Jews and others before the new stores or shops on the Jaffa Road in front of Fields Hotel, and in coming near I heard piteous female cries issuing from one of the stores. Those inside were trying hard to force the doors open, while police and a set of Muslim roughs were piling big stones against the doors. The police striking anyone who succeeded in putting head or hands out. I at once realised what the violent scene meant. As you know, several groups of Persian Jews, driven away, it is avowed by persecution, have within the last two months arrived in Jerusalem via Jaffa, and they are computed at 50, 80, and 100 families, but I have found no evidence to warrant an estimate exceeding 50 to 60 at most, or of over 150 individuals, children included. The Pasha thereupon telegraphed to the Porte and received orders to expel them from the country. Accordingly, the police had been all day and were still hunting for the Persian Jews on every side and driving them by blows into that extemporised store prison to be kept penned up like wild beasts till all could be collected and marched away back to Jaffa to be shipped off. I was told of a woman caught in the street and marched off by brute force and she was shrieking piteously for the baby she left in her miserable hovel. Another, I was assured, being enceinte, which means pregnant, was taken with pains under the blows which, which hurried her to the prison store. The scene was heartrending and outrageous to all humane feelings. I remonstrated with the police against this inhuman, cruel treatment of these poor exiles, particularly the women and girls, but they were too excited and frustrated, and replied roughly that they were acting by superior orders. And to the question, had they committed any crime, there was no reply, except that it was no business of mine. It was a brave Jew who challenged their treatment at the hands of the Muslims. Jews were despised then, as they had been for centuries by the Muslims. But some Jews appealed to the foreign powers, where they could hope for a more sympathetic hearing, which could be translated into the more powerful European nations imposing their will on the Turkish government. One petition to Her Britannic Majesty's Consul Jerusalem from S.E. Simeon to the British Consul pled for mediation or to bring about our rights which have been unjustly withheld for no other reason than that we are Jews. 
One law that was passed required Jews from outside Palestine who wanted to visit this land that was sacred to them to obtain what were called red tickets. They were a kind of permit for Jews, good for 30 to 90 days. They were introduced in 1899. Their purpose seems to have been that they were believed to be a way for the authorities to keep close track of Jews who entered the land as pilgrims or in other categories, like merchants. This was intended to tighten up control of visiting Jews to make sure that they didn't stay and not go back home. But the way it turned out was that, in fact, it was a relaxation of the restrictions. This happened because once Jews got into Palestine with the red tickets, they were in sometimes able to blend in with their fellow local Jews and stay permanently. All the more if they got protection from their local consuls if they were from a European country, because the Turkish authority had been ordered not to permit problems to develop with foreign embassies. This was recorded in an instruction dated 8 September 1904 from the Minister of the Interior in Constantinople to the Mutsarif of Jerusalem, Resid Bey. Overall, though, the government's determination to keep Jews from coming to and staying in Palestine did not slow down the Jews entering and staying in Palestine. Against this, the powerful Effendi families could force the local Turkish authorities to adopt anti-Jewish policies. They were the local power that had to be kept happy. Being a Turkish official must have been an unenviable job. Even from as far away as the central government authorities in distant Constantinople, the policies of the Sultan in Jerusalem were decided with an eye to appeasing the easily incitable Muslim mobs, incited mostly by the Effendis, although the Muslim mobs didn't always need outside prompting to resort to violence against the Jews, as they had done for hundreds of years. One report on the actions of Sultan Abul Hamid showed that he turned down an offer by Theodor Herzl, the head of the Jewish Zionist movement, to buy land in Palestine, that notwithstanding that he said that he was willing to pay any requested sum to the imperial treasury, if persecuted Jews could be permitted to settle in Palestine. The Sultan, according to a French historian, replied in un oui négatif, that's no. Remembering that Yasser Arafat had told the UN on 13 November 1974 that the Jewish invasion began in 1881, my understanding of military history is a bit challenged by that. I don't recall seeing anywhere that the French, the Americans, or the British had to pay the Germans to buy France back with the D-Day invasion. As far as I know, they just took France back off the Germans by force. That's what I understand an invasion to be. So is it, or isn't it, an invasion if you buy the land? For my money, I'd have to say it wasn't. There was no Jewish invasion at any time. The late historian David Fahey gave this account by a close connection to the Sultan, of what he was told about why the Sultan blocked sale of land to the Jews. In an interview which I had in Istanbul on 21 January 1965 with Sami Gunsberg, the Sultan's dentist, who seems to have played a certain role in introducing Herzl to the Sultan. He maintained that the Sultan was inclined to help Herzl but Herzl associated with undesirable people. The Sultan passed on a message through me to the effect 
that he had to reject Hutzel's request since he feared that the masses would be aroused. Gunzburg would not explain who the undesirable people were. But not all officials in the Ottoman Empire had that negative attitude to the Jews being allowed to reoccupy their homeland, as I'll share with you now. Although Sultan Abdul Hamed had rejected Herzl's request for Jews to buy land in Palestine and didn't offer any help to him, he later expressed a far more far-sighted view of the Jewish dream of returning to the homeland, a dream perhaps inspired by something that Theodore Herzl had said to the Sultan. When the Sultan said to his friend, Dr. Atif Hassoyan, they, the Zionists, have a goal in our country. They want to purchase land in the area of Jaffa and Jerusalem. I think that now they can purchase. There was an editor of a paper published in Vienna. He was a Jew. He was a man of knowledge. Now he died. He was referring to Hutzel. Some time ago, the rich Jews sent him to me as a delegate. They wanted to purchase the land in the neighborhoods of Jaffa and Jerusalem and to settle Jews from all parts of the world there. They really wanted to create a government there. The offer was to take full responsibility for the state's public debt. It is a good thing, since there exists a danger that if a day will come when we will not be able to pay our debts, the finance of the state will be taken over by the control of the Western powers. And I then put forward some conditions to them. Afterwards, this man died. The revolution broke out and the matter remained incomplete. The power of money can do anything. They are not going to create a government today. It is a preliminary stage. It is an aim and a hope. They will commence their work now, and after many years, even if it will be a thousand years, they might be successful in their aim. And I think they will be. The Sultan clearly recognized that this was the land of the Jews, and he saw their determination to create a homeland as happening. His position stands in sharp contrast to Article 20 of the PLO Charter, which makes this clearly false claim. The claim of a historical or spiritual tie between Jews and Palestine does not tally with historical realities, nor with the constituents of statehood in their true sense. Judaism, in its character as a religion of revelation, is not a nationality with an independent existence. Likewise, the Jews are not one people with an independent personality. They are rather citizens of the states to which they belong. This was clearly a false assertion. The Muslims themselves hadn't arrived in the Holy Lands until 635 AD, and the place wasn't empty when they did, as I've discussed in previous programs. There were many Jews living there then. Many of the other Jews had lived in Muslim states. They weren't citizens of those Muslim states. They were forbidden by law to become citizens. Even in modern times, after the creation of the State of Israel, they weren't able to become citizens of many Muslim countries. So Yasser Arafat simply can't say that the Jews living under the Muslim rule were citizens. They were living in those countries under sufferance. The closer the Jews brought the reality of returning to the Holy Lands and forming their own state, the more the Muslim attitude to the Jews buying land in their Holy Lands hardened. In 1907, a 
prominent Turkish official, when told by the British consul in Jerusalem that there were 12 million Jews in the world, exploded. Good Lord, they are not all coming to Palestine, are they? The Turks seemed to have operated on that premise from the start. They had become absolutely opposed to the settlement of the Jews, and the more Jews settled, the greater would be their opposition. By 1908, Arab deputies held 60 of the 288 seats in the Ottoman parliament. The Turkish powers could not afford to alienate the influential Arabs, which was certain if the Turks agreed to Zionist requests to be able to buy more land. Within the next few years, the Arab notables, the Effendi, were reported to have organised to oppose land sales to Jews. They were headed by the Nashashibi family of Jerusalem. Anti-Semitism was growing among the Muslims, fuelled by the Effendis. Regardless of the murders and violent assaults of Jews in Palestine by the Muslims, Jews found methods of getting around bans or restrictions and put up the risk of injury or even death. Bribery offered by the corrupt Turkish official involved was one way. No doubt Bakshish was a great power in Turkey and the greatest men in the country were unable to resist it. In Judicum Palestine, Jews, however painful, however dangerous, joined their people in settling their holy land. One way around some of the barriers was found by Russian Jews, who sometimes would get permits in Constantinople, allowing them to travel within the Ottoman Empire. Then they would enter Palestine legally. Since the attention of the Ottoman government officials was focused on stopping Jewish settlers, other Jews applied for entry either as pilgrims or on business. Then they simply stayed. Harsher enforcement of Jewish restrictions as early as 1883 didn't stop Jews finding ways back to their homeland. One thing that was unique to Palestine out of all the Muslim lands where the Jews lived was that in Judah, cum Palestine alone, the traditional subservient abused Jewish dimi were going to become equal to the Muslims and they would help wrench the Effendi's historical hold over the peasant migrants by paying living wages to the peasant Arab farmers, the Fellahin. When this danger to the Effendis became real enough, they would resort to creating fear in the Fellahin that the Jews, who the Muslims had oppressed so cruelly, so absolutely and so miserably for so many years, would return the favour. The greatest, the best and the most outrageous lie of the Muslims against the Jews and their hopes for return of their country to them was born as early as 1909. On 2 November 1909, with leading Effendis feeling their grip over the lives and fortunes of their until recently helpless victims, the poor peasant farmers getting too loose, Effendi Rui Bey Al-Khalidi warned that the Jews would displace the Arab farmers from their land and their father's heritage. The Jews were not here when we conquered the country didn't matter that the Effendi's argument was false, that it was the Effendi who were driving the peasant farmers off their land, in part so that they could sell the land to the Jews at shockingly inflated prices. It served Rui Bey al-Khalidi's group's interests. His big lie was going to be swallowed whole by not only the Muslims living side by side with the Jews in 1909, but over the decades that followed and through to the present day, a surprisingly large part of the world totally fell for it. But there was another reason 
Well, the local Muslims reacted so strongly to the Jews, and it wasn't just the whopper of a lie that the Effendis were telling them. More of that in the next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>